G'day folks and welcome to this month's episode of The Commentarians. And you might be thinking, gee Joe, are you alright? You sound really sick. Well, I'm actually uh, taking over the studio from Joe this month. My name is TJ Stedman and I am here with my co-host Chris Bather. We're uh, doing a little guest spot. We've taken over from the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. And we're going to do a uh, little uh, guest hosting spot to bring you the Marvel Studios movie Eternals this month on the Commentarians podcast. So fortunately, it's not my first time uh, on this show. I spoke with Joe back in December of 2020, I believe it was, and we did the Russell Crowe movie Noah that was directed by Darren Aronofsky so uh yeah not my first rodeo but we'll we'll see how we go here and uh hopefully you're going to enjoy the film obviously uh Chris and I will have a bit to say about it as we go through which is the whole point after all uh you can watch along with us or uh just listen to the uh commentary as we go we're going to get into the movie uh, I have got the film paused at zero and we'll count down shortly and we can start watching it together in sync and discussing this film. So yeah, hopefully you enjoy it at least half as much as I did. I think I probably enjoyed the movie more than anyone. We'll see how we go. This is Marvel Studios Eternals and we paused at zero. We will begin in three, two, one, play. All right, so our opening credits are rolling. A very biblical feeling about this. It says in the beginning. So right off the bat, we're getting a bit of a a story, giving it a very epic feel. And we're getting some mythology explained to us, uh, a bit of a creation story. And we've got these gods and chaos creatures being described to us. It's a very old tradition, this kind of thing creation stories in various forms and guises. And, uh, the opening crawl here is basically just spelling out for us a bit of backstory, talking about the Celestials, who are sort of like your uh, top-tier gods, I suppose, and uh, the main one called Arashem. Shem's an interesting name, you know, it's, it's very Semitic, obviously. Um, it sort of conjures up images of the uh, Jewish or Christian God, uh, which I don't know if that's purposeful or not, but uh, I believe the writers were Jewish, weren't they, Chris? So... Yes, g'day, folks. Uh, to steal your line, uh, Tim, I'm Chris, and as uh, Tim said, I'm uh, Tim's co-host on the uh, Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Um, so, yeah, Jack Kirby, and I'm sure we'll get into him later, is the, basically the creator of Eternals, upon which this film is based. Um, and I think this is the first Marvel film to use a text crawl, 
you and I would uh, know it in from uh, Star Wars, of course, and many other films that have used yeah. it since. Um, it, I always kind of cringe a bit when um, I see tech schools because I think it's a, a bit lazy. Um, <laughs> it's like exposition heavy and why don't you just reveal this as the story progresses? But I guess um, you know this film spans centuries. Uh, it's the 26th Marvel film, I believe, introduces at least 10 new characters, so we have a lot of stuff to get through. So I guess that's where the textual came in. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot to cover in this film, and to be honest, it kind of feels like 70% of the film is still doing backstory. So thankfully the textual eventually finishes and we uh, get to meet our characters so, uh, yeah, it's an interesting opening setting, uh, 5000 BC, the, uh, this is the, uh, Mesopotamian sort of, uh, origin of civilization. We've got, uh, ancient Sumerians here. And uh, suddenly, one of them just gets eaten by one of these deviants. Not a very imaginative name of deviants, you know. We hear a lot about uh, deviants, variants, uh, <laughs> this kind of thing these days. Um, and probably the, uh, I mean, I have been quite vocal in my team to you in my distaste of this film. And uh, <laughs> so I'm a huge comic book nerd. I had a comic book. Uh, podcast called Extra Sequential for a couple of years and uh, went to San Diego Comic Con and uh, I was doing a lot of uh, comic book journalism for lack of a better word I use the term very loosely so I'm a big comic book fan I'm not that familiar with Eternals but uh, in my mind this is certainly the worst Marvel film I saw it once in the cinema left it disappointed I knew I had to watch it at least two more times to uh, with you so that's uh shows you how much i love you tim um <laughs> but yes the deviants are one of the things which i didn't like because they're such bland creatures and there isn't really a main villain there is of sorts and he'll show up later um but every marvel film really has uh had good villain good villains thanos and red skull and you know, Magneto and uh, whoever. So uh, yeah, this doesn't right. really I'm have that. Memorable just, bad guys normally. This just has uh, exactly just bland kind of um, villain designs. We do see them evolve somewhat from the dinosaur-looking creatures we have here to perhaps uh, more contemporary animals, I guess, later yeah. on as they evolve throughout the film. But, yeah, yeah. the deviants aren't very threatening. They don't speak. They just kind of make noises and... It yeah. makes you hard to root for the, the good guys if the bad guys are just fighting yeah. nameless hordes. It's it's kind of it's kind of ironic really because they really do embody chaos and, and just sort of not knowing what's going on, which is uh, precisely what monsters in mythology are, are designed to do. You know, they're supposed to be sort of faceless and nameless and that sort of thing. Um but it really doesn't make for good cinema. <laughs> In the meantime, we've had a, a spaceship turn up. Uh, you can't have ancient civilizations and uh, 
superpowered beings without spaceships these days. And uh, we've got the, the science fiction of the 1950s, 60s and 70s uh, to thank for that. Uh, what a inspiration for uh, Eternals came from some early work. Uh, Arthur C. Clarke wrote a book called Childhood's End in 53, uh, which was a bit of inspiration for Jack Kirby at some point. And he'd also been working with other titles uh, in his work for DC uh, with the New Gods series and that sort of thing, um, which went on for a while. But, yeah, a lot of this stuff is based pretty heavily on uh, ideas that generated by uh, folks like Zechariah Sitchin, who uh, claimed that ancient Sumerians were uh, in contact with a, an advanced race from another planet and this kind of thing. So, yeah, a lot of those ideas carry through in this film. And, For me, uh, the greatest movement um, here was, was just that, that last scene where the, uh, the, the boy has a little flint knife and it gets transformed into a sophisticated, uh, high-tech weapon, you know, a, a beautiful, uh, shiny metal knife. So it's sort of depicting the advancement of civilization through this technology delivered by these higher beings, which is actually a biblical motif that we find in Genesis 4 through Genesis 6, and which gets picked up on later in Second Temple literature, like the book of First Enoch. So there's some interesting connections to biblical storylines anyway, which is going to be important for our audience uh, listening to this, and uh, part of what kept me interested in this the whole time. I do want to point out, um, since we've had the, you know, we've had the all ten characters introduced so far. Um, we don't know all their names as yet. Um, we just met Cersei um, and uh, Icarus, I think, and Ajax. I can't see. I can't even remember their names. Um, and um, we've had the hero shot of all ten of them on Mesopotamia, um, yep. and now we're obviously in the present day in London. Um, one of the thing, one of the first things, apart from the opening text scroll that this film does, is it incorporates um, artwork, I guess, pictures from the comics um, within the traditional Marvel logo, which I think may be the first film to do that. Certainly of this particular phase of Marvel films, um, I don't think all the artwork used was Jack Kirby, but the Eternals have been around since seventy five, seventy six, and various. Mm volumes by a mass of writers and artists over the years, as is the um, way in comic books. Um, so I thought that was nice. And I, I really do like that um, the filmmakers, so director Chloe Zhao, um, has been quite vocal about her love of Jack Kirby. Um, and, yeah, Jack Kirby should be a lot more famous than Stan Lee, in my opinion. He basically co-created every Marvel character that the world knows, but... Um, he died in the 90s and didn't really get to his peak of fame, not that he sought it. But, uh, yeah, a, ph a phenomenal writer, phenomenal artist, uh, Jack Kirby. And as you said, he really played with these epic themes in a lot of his like New God series, with Dark Side and Mr. Miracle. Um, he really shaped the epicness um, of comics uh, and really um, just was groundbreaking. Um, he's called the King, Jack the King Kirby. He's called the King for a very good reason. Um, 
and his influence is uh, can't be overstated really. So I'm happy that the filmmakers even just to give uh, nods to his work, even in the costume design and that kind of thing. Yeah. We just saw uh, Cersei there saving one of the children from a falling stone relic. Um, it turns out she's got the power to manipulate matter, uh, which uh, which is what we saw actually when she transformed that knife uh, back in uh, the ancient Mesopotamian uh, setting there. Uh, according to the uh, early mythology, uh, Circe's father was the sun god Helios. So uh, all, all these things start to come together as we uh, start to pick up these characters from ancient mythologies throughout the uh, Near East and, uh, and, and going into the Greco-Roman period as well. Uh, they've got some interesting backstories. Uh, we haven't got the time to go through all the mythology connected to every character, but uh, it's certainly very interesting. Um, and we're getting introduced now to a little uh, Sprite, who um, I think Sprite's one of only a couple of characters here who isn't based on a single mythological character, but more like a, a trope of uh, various different characters. Uh, gods of mischief storytelling that sort of thing so an interesting character uh, sprite uh, particularly if you're familiar with uh, shakespeare and a midsummer night's dream the, uh, the character puck very much like sprite in, uh, in a certain way yeah and um i guess apart from so jack kirby's uh, initial run um, Neil Gaiman, who a lot of listeners may be familiar with, a uh, famous English writer, created Sandman, which is coming to Netflix soon. Very uh, much loved comic series for DC. Um, wrote Coraline and a whole bunch of other stuff. Um, so he created a, a critically acclaimed run of Eternals in the early 2000s, and Sprite was probably very similar to the character she plays here. And an interesting character, I must say, like the Eternal, Eternally no pun intended, young character and the frustration that that kind of brings reminds me of uh, Kirsten Dunst in an interview with a vampire, just this right. character that wants to grow up but is just frustratingly uh, young forever. Mm. I liked the little uh, reference to Doctor Strange earlier when uh, you know, we're getting ready for a disturbing scene alongside the uh, the river here in London. And another one of these chaos monsters is about to emerge. There's uh, yeah, a whole number of little references to uh, other uh, Marvel films throughout this, but not really a significant degree of interplay between them. No, that's right. I mean, this character here um, is Dane... Whitman, you heard him. Um, you heard them refer to him as Dane. So Dane is um, played by Kit Harrington, um, and so Dane is um, and Dane. Uh, sorry, Kit Harrington from Game of Thrones. I must admit, I've never watched an episode of that series, and probably never will. But Dane Whitman is a character from the comics, not really closely associated with Eternals, but is known as uh, the Black Knight um, in the Marvel comics, and that's kind of 
hinted at here with his family history and we'll say that in the end credit scene as well later on. Spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Yes, and obviously uh, Dane knows a bit about these characters and uh, he's not completely oblivious because you know, he sees them use their powers and he's in love with Cersei. And, yeah, so he's, uh, he's, an, he's kind of caught in the middle, I guess. It's pretty interesting. Yeah, he's, he's got a bit of an idea of what's going on. Now we're seeing one of these deviants and it's looking a little bit less like some kind of sea monster and a bit more like um, a, a, a biped. Uh, emerged from the water, but now it's walking around on the land. And uh, yeah, we're seeing a different shape and the Eternals are starting to notice uh, differences in, in behavior and abilities. So they know something's up. And Icarus turns up to save the day. Icarus is uh, a, an interesting character and possibly one of the more complex characters in the film because uh, he's one of the major one of the major players here. Yeah, I mean, in the comics, he's kind of uh, he's more of the Ajax, I guess. He's uh, more of the leader and the. the He's probably the most famous Eternal, um, and I'm sure you'll tell us all about Icarus and flying too close to the sun and all that. And obviously, it's a different spelling here. But um, yeah, yes. yeah, they try and play with the the spellings and all these to just kind of I don't know to try and be a bit different or something. But we all know what's going on. <laughs> um. I thought it was interesting too. There was uh, reference to all these earthquakes and whatnot going on. We saw this uh, earthquake here in in, in London, uh, which is a very biblical uh, concept, you know, because uh, for many of us would be familiar with the words of Jesus in Matthew 24, talking about earthquakes and uh, other other calamities in various places, um, which would happen uh, prior to the end of the world. So when earthquakes happen, you know, particularly in cinema and, and you know, big things like this, uh, it's designed to give us this apocalyptic feeling like we're about to witness the end of civilization and possibly the world as we know it. And so, yeah, it's another little uh, biblical uh, tie-in that we're getting here. Yeah, and um, so Richard Madden plays Icarus, and you probably noticed that he has very familiar uh, power set to Superman. Um, and that is Superman being my favourite comics character. Yeah, he's um, very much like Superman, isn't he? Yeah, he's got the tradition, yeah, the uh, the usual set of superpowers: flight, strength, speed, vision, speed. Um, that kind of stuff. Um, and Chloe Zhao, the director, did say that she was inspired um, to make Icarus a bit darker, um, much like uh, Superman was in the Zack Snyder film, Man of Steel, from 2013, which uh, another superhero yeah. film, which I definitely do not like, um, but it does have <laughs> a very good soundtrack. Uh, but Richard Madden is from uh, Bodyguard, uh, the BBC miniseries from a couple of years ago, which is which is pretty awesome, I've got to say. That's probably where most people will know him from, I guess. Mm. Yeah, that's actually a good series, that. Yeah, so we've got a, a reference to Thanos there. So 
you know, they're obviously uh, aware of the whole uh, Avengers uh, Infinity War storyline and all the rest. Uh, yeah, it was interesting, a little bit of uh, exposition going on there saying, oh, you know, we're, we're from the, uh, the planet Olympus, which <laughs> if that isn't just a blatant ripoff of Greek mythology, you know, with Mount Olympus and the, the Olympians, well, I don't know what is, but... Uh, that's the uh, the flavor of this whole film, basically. It's a, it's a retelling of ancient myth. So uh, now we're getting a little bit of uh, backstory behind the uh, failed romance between Cersei and Icarus. Poor old Dane Whitman there feeling a bit left out. So he thought he was the guy. But, uh, yes, it's interesting watching these two sort of uh, play out their relationship. Uh, Cersei is quite conflicted at times. Yeah, it's it's almost a... uh, I've only just thought of this now watching this again, but it's almost like Superman and Lois Lane, you know, this superpowered being who could do so much, but... Is, um, is is tethered to humanity. We, you know, falling in love with a non-powered human. Um, we find that a lot in comics. Um, yeah. Um, with Peter Parker and MJ and Thor and Jane Foster and um, yeah. uh, Flash um, and his wife uh, Linda Park. You know, um, so it's a lot of. It's almost like they are falling in with humanity and humanity tethers to them. So rather than just fighting for humanity and saving the world. They're, they're in love with one person and that's the person they kind of think of. I mean, we, we do get hints of that relationship, I guess, here. Um, certainly, as you said, a troubled relationship. Um, but this isn't really a, a love story, I guess. No, it just kind of seems to be an extra layer. I don't know how necessary it is to the plot, but... Still, you know, how how could you um, be around for thousands of years around the same people and not develop connections? I suppose it's going to happen. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> it reminds me of uh, uh, the office, the English office. Oh, yeah. Do you know, I think there's a line where Tim Martin Freeman says, you know, we walk around the same piece of carpet every day for years, you know. So when you find a connection with someone, you've got to hold on to it. Um, I'm paraphrasing, yeah. but, yeah, <laughs> that's why a lot of people find their lovers, uh, eventual partners, uh, where you hang out, church yep. or work or saving the world in this case. Yeah. Well, speaking of people who spend a lot of time together in this movie, um, we've now got Gilgamesh defending the Ishtar Gate back in ancient Babylon. This is set at the time when the uh, the walls of Babylon were, were newly built. So we're in, uh, the, in the time of King Nebuchadnezzar II, actually. So this is a, a time from which we have a lot of uh, biblical connections. The um, Israelites were actually, oh, sorry, the, the Judahites were in exile at this time in Babylon at 575 B.C. 
So what we're seeing now on the screen with these beautiful blue walls around the city of Babylon, uh, this would have been the same thing that um, the ancient Jews would have actually witnessed themselves. And yeah. um, Gil, Gil, Gilgamesh is played by um, Don Lee, Korean actor Don Lee. He's 50, believe it or not, um, wow. probably a couple of years younger here. Um, and, uh, yeah, so Korean actor who probably, again, most will know from Train to Busan, which uh, another awesome film on Netflix also, and I think the sequel is coming out soon. Of course, Ajak is played by... Um, Selma Hayek has been around for many, many years. Yeah, she's she almost seems eternal herself. She's it's weird. Like she has this ability to speak to Arashem, the uh, one of the, one of the uh, celestials, right? And she's she's standing on his face or something uh, while having some kind of a vision and communicating with him. It's it's very unusual. Um. It's like, yeah, um, Ajax was um, initially male in the comics, I believe, and portrayed as a god of the Inca civilization. But uh, Ajax is based on Ajax from Greek myth. and uh, Ajax wasn't a god, but like a human king, uh, which they, they uh, often used to divinize the kings. You know, they would uh, claim that the king was the representative of a god on earth and uh there's some good reason to suggest that there's a linguistic connection to anak from the bible so if you're familiar with the anakim uh the the tribe of uh, giants from the uh early books of the old testament uh particularly numbers deuteronomy uh and, and joshua um so there's some suggestion there that uh, Ajax should have actually been a giant. I'm yet again going to be disappointed that the people who are supposed to be giants in this are not giants. So Gilgamesh is supposed to be like 16 feet tall. Uh, yeah, Ajax should be a giant. Oh, well, you know, I, I thought this was going to have giants in it, and sadly there are none. But... Uh, we're also getting introduced to Fastos here. He's the guy who comes up with all the technology, invents all the cool stuff. He's based on the Greek god Hephaestus. So, uh, as we talked about earlier, uh, in in the Bible you had the uh, these these lesser gods, these uh, fallen angels, or the uh, the sons of God, as the Bible calls them. Uh, introducing technology to mankind. And, uh, Hephaestus, or Fastos in this uh, film, really represents that. Uh, Hephaestus is the god of the forge, so he's the guy who creates all the interesting technologies and makes things out of materials that ordinary humans uh, don't know about yet. Um, we can actually trace that even further back. We can go back to the civilization of Ugarit, so uh, part of the, the, the larger group of uh, northern Canaanites. Um, they had a god known as Kothawakasis, which basically means skillful and wise. 
and in Ugaritic literature, he is the one who creates weapons that are used by the storm god Baal to destroy uh, Yam, the god of the sea. So basically, this is a guy who is able to create weapons that bring order to the world, and that's how he's sort of betrayed here, uh, portrayed, I should say, as uh, helping the primitive humans to uh, develop ways to improve their world. How he's sort of betrayed here, uh, portrayed, I should say, as uh, helping the primitive humans to uh, develop ways to improve their world. Yeah, and uh, fun fact, I've actually got the first appearance of Fastos in the comics um, from the second oh. volume of Eternals, so Eternals number one, which uh, came out in 1985. Uh, um, and yes, played by uh, Brian Tyree Henry and apparently the first gay Marvel superhero, at least to be depicted so on screen. Mm. Um, and Sprite's... Um, entertaining of the crowds there of the villagers just reminds me of uh, c3po uh, entertaining yeah. uh, the ewoks you know yeah telling the stories uh, it was interesting actually she's there telling the epic of gilgamesh uh which is kind of funny because you know gilgamesh is there and could have told it himself um <laughs> but yeah that's one of the oldest yeah. stories ever told um but of course sprite's job is not just to tell stories but to make people think certain things. So she's got a role in sort of misdirecting people so that they don't necessarily get what's going on. And then uh, we were also introduced there to Makari, who's based on the Roman god Mercury. Um, so a bit later, uh, time-wise, considering the uh, origin of these these names and whatnot, uh but Mercury comes from the Greek, uh, the Greek god Hermes, who is known for being super fast, and you might be familiar with the little icon that you see around the place of little sandals with wings on them. And uh, if you've ever bought Goodyear tires or seen the logo on the telly, you'll know what I mean. It's a little shoe with wings on it, and that comes directly from the Greek uh, depictions of the god Hermes who uh, yeah, we're seeing here in the Roman form of uh, Mercury or Macari for this film. And um, also Macari is the another first, the first uh, deaf uh, Marvel superhero on screen. Um, if you watch the Hawkeye series, you'd be familiar with uh, Echo, who appears mm. in the Hawkeye series. He's actually a Daredevil character in the comics, and she will be getting her own Disney Plus series as well, but yeah, Macari's the first deaf character, um, and obviously played by um, deaf actress uh, Lauren R- Lauren Ridloff, and uh, her husband was the interpreter um, on set. And Juig, as you announced, I think uh, earlier, Tim is played by Barry Keon. Keon, Keon, I don't know. Um, so it's interesting just to see the different interactions between the characters and kind of just in a few seconds we can see the closeness or the conflict between the characters. I think that's set up quite well. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's interesting uh, watching the the Eternals here helping people developing their agriculture and influencing their society for the better. They're always, you know, portrayed as these um, wise benefactors who uh, just want good for people and that sort of thing. But uh, you know, that's that's a powerful misdirection because when we read the Bible, uh, we're told that it's really the other way around. We whenever we have semi-divine beings interfering in the affairs of men it's never good uh, because they have a way of corrupting people and bringing them away from the knowledge of god um and i mean if you spend a lot of time in evangelical circles you'll no doubt uh hear the uh common notion that uh if there ever is a uh a UFO event or some kind of visitation from aliens or or whatnot that um, you know these are really going to be uh, demons deceiving us and and you know the the narrative will be oh you know we've we've come from another planet an advanced civilization and we're here to help you and that sort of thing and um, yeah we sort of we get told you know well that's that's going to be the the big deception that's going to come uh, in the future. Um, we just saw the first, another first for this film, which is the first sex scene in a Marvel film. Uh, no nudity, but um, certainly the first um, sex scene between Cersei and Icarus. Um, yeah, I mean, their relationship is an interesting one. He'd, Icarus certainly doesn't seem like the most charming individual, but, you know, who am I to cast aspersions on uh, Cersei's romantic choices? Now, Sprite didn't look very happy about it. <laughs> no, no. Yeah. This, this to me was where the film started to unravel a bit because it didn't make a lot of sense to me anyway. It, it's supposed to not make sense, really, but. Uh, I just felt that they didn't handle this very well. Yeah, I think the, um, I mean, obviously they're flashing back and forth between present day conflicts or situations and then going back to the past and trying yeah. to explain how these things took place. Um, I mean, that's a, not a unique storytelling device. Um, that could could work to perhaps a bit better, especially in a film like this that spans thousands of years. But I think this film didn't really connect with audience because audiences because you've got 10 characters who no one's ever heard of all in one film. Um, yeah. And you're trying th- to jump back and forth between all their backstories in the present day. You spend so little time in the present day that you, you're not even sure you follow what's going on. Yeah. I mean, we do. I mean, um, I remember when the first Iron Man film came out in 2008, I think it was. And, you know, no, none of my friends kind of knew who Iron Man was, and we could say, say the same about the Guardians of the Galaxy or Ant Man or Doctor Strange. I mean, these everyone knows who they are now, but mm. um, Guardians of the Galaxy did something very similar to this. They didn't have their own film, um, they were just all kind of introduced at once. But you've got Star Lord and Groot and Drax and Rocket Raccoon, you know, all these characters that are well loved, but here the characters just seem 
so bland. Um, there's no connection. There's no humour really in this film. And every time it attempts humour, it's just it falls flat and it's quite embarrassing. <laughs> um, so even though there's ten characters all in one film, Guardians of the Galaxy has proved that it, it can be done. Um, but Eternals, it's more like a drama. Um, yeah. It's and that's why they chose Chloe Zhao, the director who's known for the rider um, and then uh, Nomadland, which are both very serious, um, minimal, minimalistic kind of films. Um, and uh, so, yeah, this doesn't quite get there. It's like an art house film in a Marvel um, shell. And yeah. kind of, it, it could work, but it just, for whatever reason, um, I think the nature of these things on such a grand scale really sort of works against itself because you go to a movie for the big spectacle, but we're here seeing things on a cosmic level that are far bigger than anything you can easily depict on screen. Um, Yeah, that's a good point. And I think, I mean, going back again to Guardians of the Galaxy, the first film, the first scene, I think, was with uh, young Star-Lord Chris Pratt, young Chris Pratt, at the bedside of his dying mother. So instantly, the subject that we can relate to, it's Earth, yeah. it's a child in mourning, and then we're whisked away. Um, whereas here, the, the first thing we see was all these cold, distant, not very emotional or fun-loving um, people. <laughs> but like, these guys are going to carry a film for the next two and a half hours, but uh, but I will say it's interesting that the cast of characters and the, the actors that they've chosen, they're all different races and ethnicities, different body types, um, yeah. I, I guess, to represent humanity, I guess, um, or to relate to humanity in all our different cultures and races. Um, so that's yeah. interesting. It's certainly a diverse cast. Yeah, and I think uh, the, the way that they all appear so sort of morose and somber all the time. <laughs> I, I guess if you'd, if you'd been living for thousands of years through the, <laughs> through the same dramas, you probably would look like that. I don't know. Like, I suppose, uh, yeah, if you've been around for centuries and nothing is really new and interesting, uh, you probably don't get terribly excited about much. But again, yeah. that, that might be a good portrayal of what it's like, but it doesn't make for good movies. They never smile. They don't laugh no. much. <laughs> so even though, yeah, maybe inaccurate, um, you know, they're, perhaps they're getting frustrated at humanity's constant warring and bickering and their lack to, uh, to do anything about it. Um, it's like, come on, you know, you, like Thor or Spider-Man, Captain, you want to hang out with these characters. Um, but I can't say that I'd like to have a din- dinner party with any of these characters. Yeah. No, not that appealing. We're going to see Athena starting to wig out here. Of course, Athena's based on Athena. Uh, again, more Greek mythology. Um, she's starting to suffer the effects of uh, having been alive through countless uh, civilizations over thousands and thousands of years and different missions and Later we find out that they basically get uh, erased and recreated and that sort of thing many times over. And, yeah, it's starting to mess with their head. And the other Eternals 
have to devote a lot of their energy to keeping her under control until she settles. Yeah. Mad, mad weary. So it's basically their, they're known for their kind of something. There's a glitch in the matrix, I guess. And in the rebooting process, something didn't quite right. You know, the zeros and the ones, the code was a bit off. I mean, that's an interesting concept. Um, and it adds a different, uh, dilemma and, a, and, and an unintended villain, I guess, that actually has a face <laughs> rather than just yeah, deviance. Yeah. Well, it's an element of chaos from within, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so it, it it does make it a bit unpredictable and a, a little bit more interesting. I, I don't know if it really contributes much overall to the to the storyline, but uh, gives Angelina Jolie something to do, I suppose. Yeah, she's still got it. I mean, she's older than us, but uh, you know, unless there's a body double and they whacked her face on her, but uh, she's she can still kick butt. Yep. And uh, Gilgamesh is always there to save the day for her. And sometimes, sometimes that saving the day looks like punching your friends in the face. I guess. Yeah. Why not? Uh, hopefully, uh, you and I never come to that team. No, well, that's why I do this in my house, and you do it in yours. Uh, I like it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so. We have the little, uh, it's, it's almost a little divine council meeting in here. We've got all these uh, superheroes uh, standing around trying to figure out what on earth to do with Athena. And uh, that would be an interesting position to be in, having someone uh, who's not in their right mind flipping out, very dangerous and you care for them and you don't want to see harm come to them, but at the same time, you don't have an easy solution. Uh, and Yeah, I feel for people who deal with uh, loved ones, with uh, mental illness, uh, drug problems, that sort of thing, uh, where this, this sort of awkward tension uh, is, is an everyday reality. Yeah, it's almost like um, dementia or whatever. I mean, it would be pretty tragic to forget your memories, forget your friends. Um, mm. Yeah. Yeah, Druig here is really the the philosopher, isn't he? Like, um, again, he's not one uh, based on a on a single. Uh, ancient god or, or whatever he's more a, a composite of different ideas but probably uh, in going by the name I would say based on the Celtic uh, druids um, and he's, he's got some interesting power in the uh, ability to control the minds of the masses there uh, which we're seeing now on screen as he stops all the fighting that's going on outside uh, and despite that ability, it's kind of ironic that he talks to the others about using their powers to control other people and whether that's right or wrong. He's, uh, he's got some interesting uh, ethics. He's, uh, he's very determined. 
Yeah, this is where we see the team falling apart in the past and why in the present, explains in the present why they haven't um, seen each other for a long time. Yeah. Again, that's a familiar story. We see that in a lot of kind of films, you know, where you kind of getting the band back together, you know, uh, Ghostbusters Afterlife springs to yeah. mind where friends are now parted and um, we've got to kind of get back together and somehow and save the world. Yeah. You know, every time I look at Gilgamesh here, I think to myself, why did not they, why didn't they choose uh, a, an actor from the Middle East? Someone who looks Mesopotamian. True. I, I just, I'm, I'm a bit puzzled that they have these obvious connections to these um, myths, you know, which have you know, very definite locality, you know. Um, and, you know, there's no shortage of artistic depictions of these characters going back thousands of years. Uh, yeah, wouldn't have been too much to ask, I would have thought, to uh, get them to at least resemble the the cultures that uh, that spawned them. So they've got a bit of uh, diversity going on, I suppose, and that's, uh, that's a good thing. In uh, present-day Mumbai now, this is... Uh, where we get interest, uh, sorry, where we get introduced to Kingo. Now that's another interesting character from mythology, but um, a lot of people won't be familiar with Kingo because you've got to go right back to ancient Mesopotamia, and uh, that, that's assuming that there is a connection. I mean, it would be very loose because the Kingu from uh, Babylonian myth is very little uh, like like this character. Kingu is the mischievous god that incites the uh, chaos god uh, Tiamat to destroy uh, civilization and, and by extension uh, the world in Babylonian mythology and the uh, the god Marduk rises to the occasion uh, to destroy Tiamat and to recreate the, the earth and humanity and civilization as a result. Nick, he actually uses uh, Kingu's blood to create humankind in the myth. Uh, fortunately, we don't have weird connections like that here. Uh, this character seems more interesting. I'm more concerned with uh, selfies and, uh, yeah, preening himself than he does with uh, starting chaotic battles with uh, cosmic forces of chaos. Yeah, and I, I guess he's probably the closest we have to a comic relief, I guess, in this film. So played by comedic actor Kameon Nanjiani, who yeah. um, I guess a lot of people will be familiar with. Um, uh, Silicon Silicon Valley, which is a pretty good series. Um, 
Um, and also um, The Big Sick, which was a film I've seen a couple of times, kind of based on his real life and his um, how he met his wife and the medical struggles that she went through. And, um, that's a pretty awesome film. And he is jacked in this film, and that was a lot of talk when he released a uh, shirtless selfie a couple of years ago. Um, and that seems to be uh, the way these days. You've got, like, Paul Rudd and, you know, a lot of these kind of comedic actors just getting ripped or jacked for a couple of months. Uh, but Kamau's kind of kept it on. Um, but, uh, yeah, good on him. I know uh, what it takes to get to that, or not quite to that level. But, you know, when you've got a nutritionist and a chef and a personal trainer and uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars, it's, it's a lot easier. Um, but, yeah, he's certainly in the best shape in this film. Um, and being a regular gym goer, I always admire when someone puts in that kind of effort. Kind of makes me mad and also motivates me at the same time. So good on you, Kamal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting character. He does, as you say, bring a bit of uh, light relief to this film because most of the other characters, uh, yeah, they're a bit dry. Uh, yeah, at least he, it brings a bit of uh, comic relief, if you like. Yeah, a lot of this, uh, a lot of this film just seems to be like this scene in the airplane. It's just in transition, like you, you're going from one place to the next. You're always in this liminal space. You're never quite sure what's going on. Um, interspersed with moments of action and uh, exposition. And yeah, in between you're just you're just kind of travelling. Just kind of the way that it makes you feel. Um, as I say, watching these characters interact, um, it can be hard to see how they reflect the the mythology that gave rise to them in the first place. So they're just they're chatting and they're casual and they're just interacting like you know, a bunch of mates uh, enjoying a cross-country flight in an aeroplane. Indeed. Um, and we'll say Cersei here is played by Gemma Chan, English actress. Um, she was in a good TV series called Humans about um, kind of near future um, England and um, she played like a kind of a, a robot, I guess, like an android, lifelike android. I think that ran for a couple of seasons and that was a pretty interesting take. Um, and she was also one of the few actors who's played multiple roles in uh, Marvel films. So she was also in Captain Marvel a couple of years ago as Min Irva as one of the soldiers. But she looked very different, you know, had face paint on and wore a green costume, so she was certainly unrecognisable. Um, so this is actually her second appearance in a Marvel film. Interesting here how uh, Sprite points out that Kingo never ages and he just sort of passes it off as like different generations of the same family. 
Yeah, that's pretty interesting. You think people have gotten on eventually, but I, bet, I guess in his grand uh, and perhaps father days, they didn't have uh, as much photographic evidence. Yeah. It reminds me of the um, Phantom comics, you know. The, the the Phantom always looks like the same Phantom, but you get true, told true. it's, you know, it's the great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, you know, originally or something, you know. 30-something generations of Phantom. Uh, hello, we're in Australia now. It's it's time for us Australians to groan at the uh, stereotypical depiction of Australia. Well, they don't uh, have any locals appearing, like in that Simpsons episode, trying to do bad accents. <laughs> Thankfully. <laughs> we did get spared from terrible fake Australian accents. The old uh, stationary windmill in the background and some tumble-down old, uh, what is that, a pub made out of stone or something in the middle of nowhere. Gilgamesh, ancient Sumerian hero and warrior. Where, where else would you expect to find Gilgamesh? But in Australia, as a country cook, I don't know, that just doesn't make any sense to me at all. I mean, it makes some sense, I guess, because Gilgamesh is trying to take um, Fina to somewhere isolated where she won't hurt anybody. And, you know, you and I, Tim, we live in, uh, I think it's the second or third most isolated city in the world. But, yes, Australia certainly has uh, a lot of sand. I mean, I guess you could have gone to Antarctica, but uh, <laughs> then you can only eat penguins. It's just like, uh, think of a place where there's nothing. Yeah, Australia will do. Uh, it's a shame about that pie that he dropped. That looks like a really good pie. Actually, I think Americans would be disgusted by Australian pies because we generally just cook with meat. And uh, they don't do meat <laughs> yes. pie a lot. No. They like fruit pies and whatnot. Yeah, don't ask for a mince pie if you come to Australia unless you're prepared for ground beef in a pie because that's what it is <laughs> and we love it I unless have it's a fruit mince pie for christmas a fruit mince pie. oh yeah well that that's the thing see they they say they say mince pie and they're talking fruit mince pie they don't say fruit mince because they assume well pies have fruit in them like what else would you put in a pie so they say mince pie because they mean fruit mince and we australians are like you want a mince pie you got one and it's it's ground beef <laughs> So, yeah, a little uh, trap for uh, Americans if you ever come to Australia. Watch out for the uh, contents of the pie. We always call them mystery bags. Just as a bit of a colloquialism because you don't know what you're going to get in them. I remember when I went to America the first time and I ordered an iced coffee and it was a coffee with ice in it. Oh, right. Um, yes. Not what I was expecting. Yeah, that, that's that's kind of what they do in uh, McDonald's, isn't it? You ask for an iced coffee, they they just tip iced coffee out of the cup and then they put blocks of ice in it. So we've got another scene here where we're trying to uh, talk Cena down off the off the cliff, uh, metaphorically. Uh, she's still. Flipping out. 
and now the whole gang are together enjoying a feed. I think if uh, if I was Gilgamesh in Australia with very little shade, I wouldn't be wearing long pants and, and braces. You know, I'd be in like singlet and shorts. Oh and yeah, I don't, you know, you, I don't you know who the tourists are, don't you? I mean, look at them; they're yeah. all dressed. Where's the aircon? There's no aircon, and you know, there's that guy wearing a suit. Yeah. That's craziness. So uh, here we have um, another example of uh, the humour falling flat. And uh, this is just their attempt at uh, humour. And it's like, oh, the gang's all back together and it's like a family Christmas dinner and everyone's having a laugh. But uh, no. I mean, yeah, another example. Yeah, yeah it doesn't really work. No. Uh, no one was laughing when I saw this in the cinema. Yeah. And again, we're here with with all these, you know, greatest heroes, uh, heroes of world history, and they're just sitting around having a meal, having a conversation about nothing of consequence. And uh, Cersei decides to leave the room. I, I would have left the room ages ago, actually. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty dry argument in there. Not much going on. These drawings are interesting because you actually get uh, indigenous cave art that looks very similar. I've seen some some pictures of stuff like that that uh, Aboriginal Australians have drawn. So uh, it's interesting to see that uh, being drawn by the Eternals in Australia. <laughs> True. We've got uh, more discussion about the earthquakes and that sort of thing, which I uh, mentioned earlier. And uh, again, the reminder that, you know, this is uh, perhaps indicative of the end of the world. And uh, just an interesting thought there from Cersei. You know, she's trying to uh, contact Arishem, the, uh, the celestial. And I think for many Christians, there are times where we want to know what's going on and, and we feel confused and the world's chaotic and we want to connect with God. And we want to talk about these things and maybe get some answers. And oftentimes you just feel like you get no connection, you feel a bit lost. And uh, Cersei just perseveres and... She manages to uh, establish a connection, and now she can speak with Arishem. I think for us as Christians, yes, yeah, sometimes you do need to persevere, and sometimes you need to look within yourself and and see if you're not actually making it hard for yourself to commune with God. Uh, yeah, just an observation there. But now. Uh, now Cersei's actually getting a sense of understanding of what's really going on here, and we're finally getting to the the actual plot of the film, where uh, Arishem explains that celestials are seeded in different planets 
all over various universes and there is a seed inside the planet Earth which is due to give birth to a new celestial being and the birth of that being or the emergence as they call it will destroy the planet and uh, everything on it but that emergence of that celestial will mean that the celestial will go on to create uh, many more uh, worlds and galaxies and and you know all of them filled with civilizations and countless life forms as well so the major question being asked here is is it worth destroying the planet and and everyone on it so that others can be brought to life uh, out of its ruins later on yeah and it's a similar conceit to i guess uh war of the worlds you know um, there's this alien life form uh, that's been buried in the earth for decades yeah. and decades and centuries just waiting to erupt at the proper time and this is kind of where um, the film gets closest to the epic nature of the comics and sort of the last couple of Avengers films mm. did that as well. Obviously, one of the things I love about comics is there's no need for a special effects budget or whatever. They can just go absolutely bonkers, and Jack Kirby was, was the best of that. He would just put it all on the page, and he was just the king of cosmic epics. Um, and we certainly get that, with this huge look at the celestials and all that. And I remember seeing this on, on the cinema screen. I thought, oh, this is pretty cool. It, it yeah. looks good. It's certainly cinematic. Yeah, I, I think this is more the kind of thing that people had in mind when they envisioned what the film's going to be like. Yeah, there's, there's very little of this. Um, but yeah, that's, that's something I noticed about uh, Kirby's work, really. It's it tends to be in this grand cosmic scale, uh, very much like uh, the horror writer H.P. Lovecraft. Uh, very much centred around these vast cosmic intelligences and things happening on a huge scale. Uh, and these things, uh, in a way, that they, they very are. Uh, sorry, that they, they are very much. Um, the true nature of, of creation stories. That might uh, alarm some people who've only ever heard of uh, creation as told to them uh, in, in Sunday school. But the idea of creation stories in the ancient world and the, the biblical story is no different. It's just uh, told with different emphasis. Uh, is the idea that... Uh, Creation is bringing things into order and creating new possibilities. So what was there before is chaotic, non-ordered, non-living, uh, non-intelligible, and uh, fundamentally broken. Something's wrong with the way things are, and then uh, somebody comes along, uh, you know, be it a, a king... Uh, developing a new civilization or a god creating a new world and sometimes those two things are spoken of in the same terms 
and by bringing destruction upon the old order of things, they're enabled then to renew the earth or the cosmos or the country or whatever the on whatever scale you might be uh, reading it. And then these new possibilities come out. And what we're seeing depicted now in the film is a story of evolution. So that's an interesting uh, thing to bring in when we're, we're talking about creation epics. Because... Uh, there aren't that many people that would sit comfortably with uh, creation and evolution in a single united story uh, the way that you see it here uh, from a Christian perspective. And uh, I won't go and uh, infuriate and alienate uh, or, uh, Joe's audience here, but um, I think there are uh, certainly, ways in which, if you if you see that in the in the biblical text, uh, or certainly just allowed by a a reading of the biblical text, that they, they don't necessarily need to be in conflict. Um, but yeah, I'm probably already making people angry saying that, so I'll stop there. <laughs> We're down from the, the cosmos now and back in the kitchen. And the Eternal's uh, trying to figure out, again, what to do with uh, Dina and, and they're learning new things after Cersei's uh, discovery. The, uh, the question now turns to, well, if we're participating in this destruction and reordering of the cosmos, are we good or are we bad? Or what are we doing? Uh, Tiamat's an interesting name here, actually, for the creature. I mentioned it earlier. Uh, I spoke about... Uh, Kingu. So Tiamat is the name of the uh, chaos monster that threatened uh, ancient Mesopotamia according to their mythology and um, the god Marduk rose up to destroy Tiamat from the corpse of Tiamat he created the world according to their story. Um, biblically, there is something similar to the Leviathan imagery. So if you've read Psalm 74, uh, various other passages, there's some um, yeah, allusions to that, um, that kind of mythology. So when they talk about uh, Tiamat here as the, uh, the emergence of this uh, new uh, celestial being that would destroy the earth, it's very much overlapping with what we get in uh, ancient Babylonian mythology. Where are we now? South America. And Druig's uh, population of 
unknowing slaves. I don't, they don't realise they're all being mind controlled here, but they're they're all just living in harmony in the in the jungle. This is another one of these whirlwind stops around the world as the uh, Eternals all try to gather their forces for this uh, final battle that's to come. By this stage, I think all the viewers are a bit tired of being whipped around the world here and there just to pick up another person to put in the spaceship. Yeah, you know, the Eternals are about to spill the beans and make Drew very upset by the uh, realisation that he's not actually a free agent uh, doing as he pleases. Some very interesting questions come out of this. Uh, not just the uh, ethical stuff, but you know how much of their actions and... and their purpose is uh, predetermined. And, um, to what extent are they uh, good guys doing a good thing or are they good guys doing a bad thing? Do they have a, a good master or a bad master? Is it good to destroy one thing so that you can create another? Uh, this is some deep questions that the characters wrestle with, but they don't really spend enough time to sufficiently develop these things. Um, it's ironic given a two and a half hour film, they've probably got time to expand on that if they want to, but there's uh, too much jumping around the universe trying to catch up with all the backstories. There's uh, a little bit of a hint developing here that uh, Icarus is uh, going to uh, perhaps go a bit unhinged before long. Seems to be getting a bit shirty, a bit edgy here. They haven't managed to convince Druig that he needs to be part of what's going on. Uh, their fortunes will change in a moment. I will say there's uh, uh, every time, well not every time, but the last few times a uh, Marvel film has been released on Disney Plus, they've also released a corresponding documentary and the series is called uh, Assembled and the one for this film, Eternals, was released couple of weeks ago so it's basically a behind the scenes thing and interviews with the director and the creators and actors and all that kind of stuff it's about an hour long um so if you're more interested in the behind the scenes making of the film um go to eternals assembled on disney plus yeah that'd be worth checking out i was gonna have a look at that i didn't get around to it beforehand yeah i'll probably watch that after Bit of a touching scene here, I think. Um, Tina and Gilgamesh and just sort of acknowledging that they've always been there for each other uh, through difficult times. And it seems to be a little more genuine 
to me anyway than uh, some of the other relationships between the other characters. I don't know. I think maybe yeah. just just better actors or what. I don't know. Yeah, it's more heartwarming, isn't it? Their relationship, uh, whereas every other relationship kind of seems uh, not genuine or perhaps a bit uh, troubled just below the surface. Yeah. What do you think about Kingo mentioning Peter Pan? Uh, yeah, I think calling Sprite uh, Tinkerbell. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, it would be hard to not have just thousands of years of pop culture references at your fingertips. Yeah. But, uh, I thought it was a pretty good uh, analogy, really. Uh, the fact that Tinkerbell's always been keen on Peter Pan, but is never going to hook up with him, you know? And uh, Sprite seems to be very much the same way with Icarus, just... Yeah, he's inaccessible. Sprite's just, uh, yeah, be upset about that. <laughs> I did wonder how many cameras uh, Kingo's mate carries around. Seems to have a, a different one in every scene. It's kind of weird that they keep Dane Whitman in the in the loop here just by sort of having him trying to contact Cersei every so often. It's like we're just sort of being reminded that he's there the whole time. But he plays no part in the bulk of the film. Yeah, it's an odd one, isn't it? Um, I guess he's kind of the, the human connection for us. He's kind of the, the standard for humanity, perhaps. Um, and also shows that um, Cersei loves humanity so much that she's fallen in love with one of us. Yeah, that's the interesting thing, actually, that the um, the Celestial uh, chose Cersei to uh, to be the, the the Prime Eternal after the death of Ajak, and yet Cersei's the one most sympathetic to the humans, who's basically the most likely to uh, sabotage the whole plan of the Celestials in the first place. Yeah, and Cersei also does, I mean, she uses the, uh, you talked about her powers earlier, which are very similar to Firestorm from DC and that she does, I think it's called transmutation, she changes the matter of different objects and stuff. She doesn't really punch or kick anyone, she doesn't stab anyone, she's not, she doesn't have offensive weapons, they're more defensive or just changing the properties of yeah. things, you know, she's not a soldier necessarily, she's more about protecting people and we'll see that soon. Yeah, well, the monster's are back now, so there's going to be fight happening. And again, they just sort of portrayed as mindless beasts. Though every time we see them, they look uh, a bit less strange and a bit less alien. Still pretty weird. It just strikes me that the Eternals here 
none of them have any really fantastic powers beyond what we see in other superhero films. And these deviants, as you said before, Chris, like they don't really seem to pose much of a threat other than, you know, they're going to run around and eat a few people. Um, and I think that's another reason where, you know, for me to sort of consider that it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a failed attempt really at building a story that just doesn't seem uh, plausible. The idea that these deviants are uh, disrupting the plan of the Celestials by reducing human population below a threshold level that they need to spawn the emergence of more Celestials. Like, if all they're going to do is run around and eat a couple of people, they're, they're really not a, a threat. Like, you know, any natural disaster that happens would do more damage than they do. <laughs> true, you know true. I, mean? like, I just, I don't see that as really carrying that story with any credibility. And, and the Eternals, they seem to have only just enough power to hold them off. <laughs> you know, then they don't really manage to actually destroy these uh, deviants uh, convincingly. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I think for for something that's supposed to be on such a grand cosmic scale, um, it just seems to lack some imagination, I suppose. I don't know. Maybe they've got to make it real enough at some point that it's relatable, but just, you know, shooting monsters with guns. We've seen it before. Yeah, we have uh, more philosophy here as we consider... Druig uh, mind-controlling all his uh, slaves with their guns. Uh, very, well, for me as an Australian, anyway, it's, it seems to me to be a distinctively American idea that, uh, you know, guns have to be involved if you want to win a, a war. Um Oh, now we're uh, we're back to Athena having trouble regulating herself. She's going to sleep out shortly when they need her the most. Druig seemed to uh, let go of controlling pretty easily. Oh, I've controlled you, your villagers, for thousands of years, but oh, you're free now. Yeah, yeah, I don't know, it was... Sort of, um, yeah, just kind of convenient to do that then. I guess he's trying to save them, but uh, if I was them, I wouldn't come back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're watching some creative ways to uh, dismember these uh, chaos monsters. 
you know. Uh, but uh, yeah, again, we're we're seeing these monsters take different forms and become a bit more relatable, a bit more uh, human-like. And uh, Icarus puts on a bit of a Superman show, but even he uh, can't control them all. But it's it's very much uh, violence against violence here, isn't it? There's, um, you know, when when confronted by chaos, is the answer necessarily <laughs> necessarily? Is is the answer to chaos necessarily violence? Um, which is probably the only question that this film doesn't seek to answer. It doesn't even ask. Which is kind of ironic given the other uh, philosophical issues that it raises. True, but I guess uh, like any superhero or action or blockbuster film, Violence is expected. It's the yeah, uh, you know, that's going to do most conflict. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And these creatures can't be reasoned with, I guess. So violence is the only answer. Oh yeah, that's that's what we're told. No, I, this this scene fascinated me actually when uh, Cersei turned the deviant into a tree, um, and, and she hadn't done anything like that before. Like turned into a living thing, or or transformed a living thing into something else. So that was pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, the, uh, um, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, Marvel films are often criticised for their uh, lack of visual style like they're, they're generally quite bland i mean even though there's good costuming and special effects the cinematography is often you know the same um there's not real any anything daring or experimental um i mean this this film each locale certainly has its own unique cinematography compared to the colorful scenes in other particularly the bollywood um, the mesopotamia this this is a lot more i guess smoky and misty muted color palette so at least they're trying after 26 films they're trying to do something different yeah. um but i don't know if that'll continue um after the poor reception this film got and certainly the lowest rated marvel film um and you know the next marvel film is dr strange and the multiverse of madness which i'm quite excited about that'll yeah, pretty much be be the opposite of this, you know. Yeah. Um, but don't you think, like, like that's largely the difference between the interconnectedness of the multiverse idea, where you've got familiar characters from, you know, different uh, timelines and different stories that we already know, uh, you know, all mingled together, versus this, which is almost entirely detached from anything we'd be familiar with. Yeah. I mean, these are all brand new characters, new concepts, 
uh, we've never heard of the Celestials or anything like that before. Yeah, Doctor Strange. I mean, it's for the same reason us people are so excited for the last Spider-Man film. I guess it's uh, and Ghostbusters Afterlife, which I adored. It's hitting all those nostalgia buttons in such the right way. This doesn't do that. That doesn't mean it's a bad film because it doesn't. But you have to work a little bit harder to get your um, audience interested in characters that you've never seen before. But it's again, as again, I'll mention Guardians of the Galaxy. It's definitely doable. Yeah. Yeah, that was uh, definitely done better. But then it's a lot more fun, isn't it? You know, that whole concept. Um, yeah, this this part of the film, you know, it starts to get interesting when the... Uh, the, the deviants uh, evolve rapidly and start to look very human-like and start actually having conversations. And, and the uh, Eternals realise that they're becoming sentient beings now and they, they can be reasoned with and they can be talked to. Um, but now they've got to overcome the wrongs of the past because the deviants are saying, well, you know, you, you think you're the saviours of... The world and everything else, but you're just murderers, and you know, you're killing us. And uh, yeah, the, very interesting uh, with these sort of themes of uh, having a, a savior and talk about forgiveness and, and that sort of thing. Um, again, really brings out these. Um, Biblical themes that we're so used to in our uh, Western culture, uh, because of our uh, Christian roots. But uh, in in this setting where we have uh, evolution and we have the mythology of uh, pagan civilizations, and we have these. Uh, cosmic scale creation narratives unfolding, it's all kind of lost in the mix. We've got Druid here philosophizing again and sort of asking the tough questions. Yeah, it's an interesting line from Cersei there saying that the uh, the deviants are uh, sentient beings now that have a conscience and she says that makes them more dangerous. Uh, I wonder how we reflect on ourselves in that way and, and how we treat animals. Um, you know, these are just things that kind of went through my mind as I watched this. Uh, film the first time. It, uh, it doesn't really allow you enough time to to dwell on these things to any satisfactory conclusion. It just kind of raises the issues and leaves them in there. It's very, uh, well, it's almost it's almost pretentious, really, doing lip service to the ideas. Uh, and, you know, here we have uh, Fastos uh, in, in Grief over the damage that 
technology is brought to the world in uh, Hiroshima, 1945. It's witnessing the aftermath of the uh, atomic bomb. And uh, again, you know, for a very short time, we're exposed to some very deep thoughts and some tough questions. And then, uh, you know, we're whisked away to another location, another situation, and something else to, to think about for a moment. Now we have uh, Fastos in his uh, present-day home environment. And uh, as you mentioned before, Chris, uh, we've got a, uh, a uh, homosexual couple um, running the, uh, the household. And that's uh, a, a novelty for... Uh, for a Marvel film, anyway. Uh, and I don't mean novelty as in a cheap attraction, but as, as a new thing. Uh, the Superman reference there is kind of funny. It is, and um, I think I, I posted on Instagram when I first saw this film, I said the best thing about Eternals is... Uh, or the Jack Kirby um, references and uh, the Superman reference. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, yeah. That was uh, kind of a surprise. Um, even though Marvel and DC yeah, are friendly rivals, but they are. It's like rival music producers or, or rival publishers or rival film studios, even though they're in the same business. They don't, they're still in competition with, with one another. So yeah. I just, and then Kirby had been on both sides. He has. Um, yeah, so he just came back to um, Marvel and created the Eternals after a stint at DC, creating the New Gods, as you said. Um, and there we see a Star Wars reference because obviously now uh, <laughs> it's all uh, owned by the same company. Yeah, Disney pretty um, keen to get a bit of product placement in there. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, it's interesting. The Superman reference. I was thinking, oh, okay. Does that mean like Superman is a fictional character within the Marvel universe? Um, in the 90s, there was a lot of crossovers. So we had Green Lantern and Silver Surfer and Superman and Hulk and, you know, uh, just Batman, Daredevil, um, Batman, Captain America. Every character you can think of in the 90s, there was a lot of comic crossovers, which um, in the crescendo, crescendo of that was uh, Marvel versus DC, which is a four-issue limited series. Um, where some of these kind of celestial-like beings existed. Um, but, yeah, it would be awesome to see a Marvel versus DC film at some point. Um, I don't know if that will ever happen, but, yeah. yeah, Superman reference was a nice surprise. Yeah, there was a Batman reference earlier as well. I love that bit where he smashes the table. <laughs> Just, oh, yes. Assuming it's made out of... What did, he, what did he say, vibranium? <laughs> yes, the stuff that Captain America's shield's made out of and uh, yeah. Black Panther reference there. Yeah, they just drop these little nuggets everywhere, don't they? Easter eggs. 
Yeah, interesting. We've got a uh, uh, an Arabic character uh, here as um, Fastos's partner. We didn't get an Arabic uh, character to play Gilgamesh. <laughs> that would have made more sense. So they're still trying to uh, win Fastos over here. And uh, he's decided he's a, he's a family man. He doesn't want to borrow it. But uh, his partner eventually convinces him to do the right thing by the world. <laughs> and uh, we have the team... Uh, Back together. Now we're in Iraq. Again, another another jump somewhere else in the world. And uh, you can't go to Iraq without seeing spaceships if you watch Ancient Aliens. So uh, you won't be surprised when a spaceship just uh, emerges out of the ground here. Can't stand that show because they just lie to people. But uh, anyway, it's uh, it's pretty cool to watch this giant and very ancient spaceship. It's it's interesting because I think it's the first time I've seen a depiction of a spaceship that appears to actually be made of stone. So that's kind of cool. I don't know if it is. What's it supposed to be made of, Christy? Man, looks like stone. Um, I I don't. Um... But I'm kind of reminded of when we saw the um, in the opening scene we saw kind of like the the obelisk. Yeah, that kind of reminded me of 2001. You know, this oh, yeah. big black. <laughs> That's kind of what it reminds me of. Yeah, very much. And yeah, it's got this uh, triangular shape, which I suppose is reminiscent of the. Pyramids and that sort of thing. And here's uh, Makari, who's been happily hoarding things. Uh, bit of a bit of a pickpocket, that Makari. Don't leave your silverware out when she comes around. She's uh, managed to fill their spaceship with treasures. And. Uh, Oh, yeah, there we go, with all the uh, statues of uh, Egyptian gods and that sort of thing. Fancy swords, all kinds of interesting trinkets that she's got. And she's talking here about, uh, again, the, the planet Olympia, which turns out it was all made up anyway. And she's pretty upset. Um, just had a Ebony Blade and Excalibur reference. So Ebony Blade is the blade that Black Knight, who is Dane Whitman, although not yet in this film. Um, so Ebony Blade is an ancestral and powerful sword that the Black Knight uses. And Excalibur, obviously, reference to King Arthur, etc. Yeah. Knights of the Round Table and all that. That's... Uh... Emerald tablet that they're uh, talking about. It's uh, 
interesting bit of uh, ancient Egyptian occultic uh, magic that we're uh, talking about there. And uh, these these bracelets, Chris, are they related to the the ten rings from the Shang Chi thing? Uh, I would say not. Um, I do recall. Um, is there ten of them? I do recall watching uh, various YouTube kind of summaries, and I'm a bit of a sucker for that kind of stuff like spoilers and what this means and hidden stuff especially if it gets to the comics I like all that kind of stuff but no I don't think so even though in the Shang-Chi film the rings did have um, alien origins memory right um, they just kind of came and in the comics as well but they didn't really explain that in the Shang-Chi film I think they just said that um, they came from a meteor or something but I don't think there's any link here, at least not an obvious one. Hmm. So now they're uh, talking about the possible implications of what happens if they kill Tiamat, the uh, celestial that's about to burst out of the planet Earth. Uh, like uh, <laughs> like an alien from <laughs> from the chest. <laughs> well, I think what there was a Noah. Hey, there was a Noah reference there as well, wasn't it? Did I just miss that? Yeah, 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 yeah. Build an ark or something. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, like talking about the the implications of uh, you know. What, what happens if we prevent the emergence of future civilizations and millions of lives? But I don't know, I kind of find that uh, a little a little dry. It's kind of it's kind of self-defeating, really. Uh, I understand if there is a life being created. So, for example. Um, an unborn baby in the womb that that is a a living person being brought into the world so there's for me a very clear ethical position on that um, that, we, that we have a, a living being forming um, and and should should be allowed to continue to form and to live and and to uh, have a, a future and a destiny and all the rest. Uh, but when we're talking about potential uh, future people, you know, civilizations and whatnot that haven't uh, haven't had any. Uh, Formation that that aren't alive yet, that are basically just potential and not actual. Uh, I don't know that there is much of a responsibility uh, to uh, to preserve that. 
Uh, I don't know. I mean, that's that's a tricky one. I mean, we talk about uh, preserving endangered species and that sort of thing. But, uh, I don't know, how, how far do we go? Are we responsible for uh, creating opportunities for other things to evolve and develop and live later? Uh, or are we not? Getting the... Uh, Backstory now and the unfolding of what happened with Ajak and how she wound up being found dead. Yeah, and another Thanos reference, just a very subtle tie. But actually, just remember, guys, this is a Marvel film. Um, and yeah, it's an interesting dynamic where um, Ajak is having doubts of the, the guide that she's followed for millions of years. and I guess she loves humanity so much that she doesn't want uh, our planet to die to create a celestial. And Icarus is like, well, this is our mission. And he's kind of the uh, the zealot, I guess. But um, yeah. after all the planets they've gone to, I find it hard to believe that humanity is the one that changed her mind. But I guess all the other ones were pretty uninteresting. That's the thing. <laughs> I, these always seem to circle back to the uniqueness of humanity and I think we can't really escape uh, the, the knowledge that we were made to represent God and that's what makes us unique and special and even if that isn't the, the reason given here there's just this acknowledgement that humanity is special and somehow different and worth saving yeah, created uh, a little lower than the angels. Is that the verse? Hmm. Something along those lines. Yeah, it's interesting that uh, even in the midst of all this uh, pagan mythology and evolutionary theory and science fiction and all the rest of it, we still have this sense that humans are the most significant life forms in the universe. And that sort of points to a, a higher purpose uh, for all of us. It's a profound uh, thought as we witness uh, Ajak being shoved to her death. And the... Uh, Faceless, nameless deviants uh, want to attack her. How does she have a gun? Like, just found it there? That's weird. Why was there a gun? I'm lost. Um, yes, that's a good point. <laughs> I guess it's, uh, yeah, she didn't have it with her, but... Uh, Perhaps it's a, um, oh, it does look like a modern gun. Perhaps it's like a, a hunting party in Alaska. Left it, dropped it, forgot about it. Yeah, it's just like, 
what, she can't be depicted as trying to defend herself without having a gun to do it? That's a very American thing, isn't it? Like, you know, <laughs> other people have other ways to defend themselves. I don't know. But, uh, here again, we're witnessing more of this uh, evolution of the deviants. And what I find interesting here is the way that they all seem to be interconnected. We've got this one deviant uh, sending out these tentacle type things that connect to all the other deviants and they all uh, take on these new characteristics and they change and evolve and grow uh, together and they seem to share uh, a common mind or intelligence. Um, and that's an interesting uh, trope actually that you find in ancient civilizations and uh, the Bible's no different. Uh, if you look at some of the uh, more uh, apocalyptic scenes from biblical prophecy, uh, like in the book of Joel, you have the idea that uh, this army that's described as being like locusts um, sort of be of one mind and, and move together and uh, and act as one, and that uh, imagery and, and similar terminology comes up again and again uh, throughout Scripture to describe the enemies of God, that somehow they're united, like having the same mind or the same purpose. So, yeah, uh, I'm just noticing... Um... I, I guess you would say that Icarus is he's here, he's kind of the Judas of the pack, you know. He's yeah. uh he's been with his band of brothers and sisters on, on a mission and now he's changed his mind and he has betrayed their leader. Um and I guess Cersei um and Ajax would be the ones that are not humans, um, uh, but um, in love with humanity, and I guess I guess that would be another um, Jesus reference, like my verse about the angels <laughs> earlier. You know, like they're not, mm. they're not humans, but they um, they live like one of us. They love like us. Um, they care for us. Um, and now um, Icarus is like, no, I I care for myself. Um, and I'm going to betray the mission, and I'm going to betray my teammates. So he's, I guess, he's the Judas. And again, when he uh, laid down Ajax's body farm, the previous scene, and screamed and let the heat vision shot out, that just reminds me of that atrocious scene at the end of Man of Steel where uh, Superman oh. cracked Zod's neck and screamed and his heat vision came out. I'm like, Superman would never kill anyone. Um, that, that just made me so angry, that scene. Yeah. Um, and that, uh, that, again, just reminds me of that. Yeah, it's it starts to get a bit tedious between these two because you know that they're... <laughs> They're not going to get together. They're not going to restore this relationship. 
No, and I'm not really sold on Icarus's conflict and inner torment. Um, you know, it's just been, I guess, when you try and show 7,000 years in an hour and a half or two, an hour, two and a half hours, it's, it's a bit hard to sell that. Mm. Um, but, uh, but I guess also the lack of a obvious, the lack of a villain with a face or the villain with a character that the conflict yeah. tends to come from within. Yeah. So we're finally at the point now where this new celestial Tiamat is about to emerge from beneath the surface of the earth, which uh, sounds a lot more interesting and dramatic than it ends up being, to be honest. But uh, <laughs> we were finally I... getting to the crux of the film. Yeah, I do like Makari's running. I mean, she kind of runs like a a good speedster. I don't know if I mentioned it before, but every superhero film needs a good speedster, whether it's Flash yeah. on the Justice League or Quicksilver uh, in the X-Men. Um, I like the way that they've done her running. It's like kind of hopping and a bit erratic and it's not mm. smooth and steady. I like that kind of just the, the turbulent velocity. It's pretty cool. Well, given that you just mentioned... Uh... X-Men, it, it reminded me actually of uh, looking through uh, Cerebro to find someone, you know, um, seeing this little dot of light just darting around the world. True, true. Good, good pick up. And I did want to mention the uh, the costumes as well. Um, apart from comics, I collect uh, action figures and the... Uh, the Eternals action figures were what we call peg warmers, um, as in not popular action figures, because the action figures are pretty were pretty bland for this film. Um, mm. And the the costumes of the comics are a lot more colourful. Whereas here they've just got kind of a muted colour colour palette with some. They look a bit a lot more regal, I guess, than the traditional superhero costumes, and that was certainly a choice. Mm. But if you look at uh, Icarus, for example, his comic costume looks like a lot cooler than what this film costume looks like. Icarus is the only one who's actually dressed up here. The, the rest of them are just wearing ordinary gear. True. Well, that's a bit of a letdown, isn't it? <laughs> but Again, it's I also guess kind that's of a choice. Like no, he's always... the only one who's still continuing his mission. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, like, he's... It's uh, typical of a lot of films, actually, where, you know, the, the the baddie's the one who's dressed up in the cool suit. Yeah. yeah, the others are wearing human clothing because they're so connected with humanity that he, uh, he's, he's wearing his original suit that was given to him by his celestials because he's still on his original mission. There's a clear divide there, just a yeah. clear visual divide. Yeah, that's a good thought. I like how you put that. I think that works. I still feel like this this scene is just taking too long. <laughs> Starting to get a bit of conflict between them, and meanwhile there's yeah, and a celestial emerging, and they're all just yeah. <laughs> And it all comes down to punching. Yeah. But they could all just go while he stands there. 
But I, I think they're, you know, they're trying to win him over and, and, and get Icarus back on board. Um, because they recognise that the more of them they have, uh, the better chance they have against Tiamat. Uh, but it's not going to happen. Yeah, I mean, Kingo just said you don't turn against your family, but um, part of the whole conceit of this film is that they haven't seen each other for centuries. Yeah. <laughs> so how dare you turn against family. us? We're family, but we haven't spoke we haven't spoken to each other for centuries. But we're still family. Yeah. But we don't love one another to keep in contact. But we're still family. How dare you turn against us? <laughs> Make your mind up. Yeah. I think people uh, bring out the family card when they want leverage. It's interesting here to hear him uh, talking about faith and beliefs and, you know, the higher power being uh, Arishem. Uh, But when you consider the implications of what that faith and what that belief is. I mean, he's talking about the the destruction of the earth uh, for the sake of future civilizations that have yet to be uh, even imagined, never mind uh, actually created. So uh, it's a bit ominous. I mean, you know, does, uh, does, does your God necessarily... Uh, believe in uh, destroying the world for the sake of other potential life forms later on down the track or does your God value the life that he created in the first place and uh, to me that's the core issue of the film and it just doesn't seem to get addressed Yeah, that's a good point. Um, and I don't know if this film will see a sequel to discuss those kinds of issues. Um, I don't think it was successful enough to uh, warrant a sequel. But it seems to want to tackle a lot, but also have the necessary action scenes and stuff. It's, it's a hard balance. Um, but I think the previous films have certainly... Previous Marvel films have done that. They've managed the spectacle, but also the humanity. Yeah. Um, and I actually, um, I think I did read that Chloe Zhao had, the director, had a, um, was kind of one of her pitches when she pitched to direct this film. Um, she uh, read a, uh, a Will and Blake poem which says, I think you've got to hear, and this is what she said as the inspiration, what she wanted to do for this film, to see the world in a grain of sand and a heaven in a wild flower. Hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. And she kind of wanted to, like that poem, have the eternity but also the intimacy. Mm. Um, didn't quite get there, I guess, and maybe that's because just the sheer abundance of characters and new concepts in this film. Um, yeah, but it's a noble effort. Well, yeah, I guess it raises the question: you know, can you really do that? You know, I mean, is that even achievable? I mean, the reason that that's such uh, uh, profound uh, poetry is because it sort of 
encapsulates ideas that we uh, struggle to grasp. So, yeah, how much more are we going to struggle to wrap our heads around it in the in a, in a film production? It's also supposed to be an action movie. <laughs> It's quite the challenge. So we're finally getting to the point where Fastos is trying something new here. He needs something that's going to provide the energy to connect all of the Eternals and bring their power together so that they can use it against uh, Tiamat. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, the uh, the hive mind kind of idea that they seem to have with the, uh, the bad guys, uh, now they're looking at doing the same thing um, here with the Eternals. Yeah, that's a good, good call out, the, uh, the Union Mind. And, mm. you know, we know as Christians, obviously, that uh, unity is such a powerful concept. And, uh, and, you know, it's mentioned a lot, obviously, in Paul's letters. And it reminds me of Philippians 2. Um, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. And unity really honors God. And, just God honors unity. Um, yeah. And when, as a church, as believers, we are not united, it doesn't represent God um, well. Um, so here we are. They're uh, all united because they're all wearing their original suits. Oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> now they've got a job to do, they're wearing the, wearing the right gear. Hmm. No, it's a good point that you raise, um, and really one of the that that's actually one of the key points that I bring out in my book, Answers to Giant Questions. Uh, on the on the one hand, we have the forces of evil, which uh, sort of have a unity in uh, in disunity, in that uh, everyone wants to be an individual. Everyone wants to deviate from the norm. And, uh, you know, we have the, the bad guys are called the deviants here, right? This idea that um, the, the forces of chaos might not have a, uh, a unity between them and, and relationship and um, all those sort of interpersonal uh, things. Um, but they do unite against um, order and and uh, the forces of good in the world, I suppose. So when you look at the uh, the good guys and what brings them together, uh, they're united more by community and family and those kind of things and, and 
what they have in common as opposed to what makes them distinct from one another. And I think biblically we see that uh, in uh, things like circumcision and baptism and those community uh, observances that are done so that individuals can identify with the group and be part of it rather than being distinct from it. And the strength of the community is found in the uh, collective. Um, all, all these people identifying uh, the same way and sharing what they have in common and finding strength in that uh, as opposed to this idea of uh, individualism and uh, doing things in rebellion against um, the creator. Yeah, that's that's a very valid point. Um, and just watching this end scene reminds me of a lot of um, blockbuster films that fall into the same trap where they try and show the end of the world but they don't really show the world's reactions <laughs> so yeah. we've got a bunch we've got 10 people fighting on an empty desolate wasteland they're fighting for humanity but we don't see any reactions like who are they fighting you know the, the justice league film fell into the same kind of trap you know they were fighting in i think chernobyl or somewhere and we just saw yeah. like one family on the back of the U trying to escape yeah. so yeah I mean, I understand the need to focus on the big epic fight scene to finish the film, but, um, yeah, I, I guess normally in these kind of films you'd have, like, newscasts and, you know, like Independence Day, you'd cut to London and Paris and landmarks being destroyed. But here, Yeah, just the like, old, oh, gee, that annoys me, though, watching the old destruction of landmarks everywhere, like, oh, here's a shot of the Sydney Harbour Bridge being you know, on fire and, oh, here's a shot of the pyramids in Egypt and there's an earthquake and, oh, here's the awful tower falling over. And I was like, oh, so, so cheesy. Um, but, but I totally agree that this scene just lacks any connection to humanity. Like, what are they fighting for? There's no people sort of, you know, threatened by what's going on. Uh, instead, we have these... You know, divine or semi-divine beings uh, duking it out. It would be good if uh, old uh, Dane Whitman gave his uh, eternal girlfriend a call right about now just to remind uh, her and <laughs> their fellow turtles that she's fighting for humanity, not just to get back at their teammate who's dead yeah. against them. Oh, maybe he is trying to call, but, you know, she's busy. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Do those uh, costumes have pockets in them? Don't know where she'd put her phone. Yeah, I'm not going to speculate. But um, that's a it's an interesting scene here, watching these guys trying to uh, team up against this deviant who seems to be more than a match for all of them. Yeah. Like again, uh, I fail to be impressed. <laughs> Just surely if the purpose of the 
Eternals was to control the threat of the Deviants, then the Celestials really dropped the ball when it came to uh, equipping them for that task. Because it seems like they only barely manage, if, if at all, every time. I don't know, that whole story Sorry. just seems to me like it just doesn't doesn't carry. It's interesting watching them restraining Icarus here because I'm sort of thinking about uh, a lot of uh, mythological uh, stories, you know, from the ancient world. Um, things like the, um, the Watchers in... Uh, in the Book of Enoch, uh, being restrained uh, with, with chains and that sort of thing, which gets alluded to in the Bible as well. Uh, I think it's First uh, Peter and Jude. They talk about uh, these everlasting chains of darkness that uh, restrain the fallen angels. Well, it's also... Uh been done before in a Marvel film in uh, Infinity War, I guess, um, with um, when they tried to restrain Thanos with Doctor Strange yeah. and then Spider-Man with the weapon, like they all tried to kind of restrain him in a similar fashion. Yeah, it's interesting how these themes seem to come out and the... Uh end of the world type of thing here and the the um, I suppose the theme of uh, judgment seems to come through with the various power plays and, and whatever else and the destruction of the world and then we've got all this lava and fire and all that kind of thing, it's very much sort of you know, fire and brimstone it's very apocalyptic uh just can't seem to get away from a lot of that typical imagery that's associated with uh, biblical end times stuff, you know. Uh, although a lot of that's based on later traditions that you don't actually have in scripture. But uh, it's 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 part of our cultural milieu, I suppose, to to look at scenes like this and to to see, you know, to visualise the uh, the end of the world. Now, uh, Sprite sort of re revealing that it's a lot bigger than it looked at first. And uh, here comes Druig to save the day. That's uh, unusual for, for his character, really. Even at this point, it's kind of hard to to visualise um, a, a cosmic level sort of threat like they're dealing with. Um, and you've got... True, true. Uh, Athena here in this cave fighting this deviant, which to me just seems to serve no purpose at all in the story at this point. I mean, the, the deviants are supposed to be um, killing humans if they want to prevent the emergence of uh, Tiamat and instead we've got this one here taking on the Eternals 
I don't know. No, no apparent reason. I just, I don't see the purpose of this um, subplot at this point. But I suppose uh, in in most films you've you've got to have a battle on two fronts, don't you? At least. Uh, so we've got you know the big fight happening outside. Trying to uh, deal with Icarus and Sprite and trying to stop the emergence. And then you have uh, this one here with uh, Dina versus the Deviant. I don't know. I suppose it keeps it, uh, keeps it fresh being able to change the scene and focus on something else. But yeah, I just wonder how relevant it is. Still, something kind of satisfying about watching uh, Dina chop him up. <laughs> I suppose this film does raise questions about evolution and uh, whether that's uh, good or bad or indifferent. In this film, it, it seems that uh, evolution is sort of cast as um, a, a negative force in that it enabled the deviants to evolve. Uh, but they don't really talk much about uh, human evolution uh, in, in similar terms. And now we have the moment we've all been waiting for and the emergence of Tiamat out of the ground. We get our first look at this celestial being rising out of the ocean depths. And again, this is a very traditional uh, ancient Near Eastern uh, creation image where uh, the new order of things, the new civilization or the new uh, power that is to be emerges out of the sea. And uh, we even find traces of that in the biblical creation account where uh, God separates the uh, land from the waters during the uh, creation week. So... These are obviously different perspectives on that uh, concept. But the idea of uh, this new uh, creation emerging from the old one uh, is uh, a trope as old as civilization itself. What do you reckon, Chris? Do you think there was? Uh, do you think they they pulled this off pretty well this this scene, or do you think they should have done things different, or what? I mean, there's no sense that they're using the uni mind to amplify her powers. 
Um, yeah, that's a bit odd, isn't it? Like they talked about it, and you, you're not actually getting to see it here. Yeah, I mean, if if she's been able to do this all along, then what were they worried about? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, but they um they use the uni mind later for something else, don't they? Um, You can be right there. Flashbacks and yes, wedding memories. (laughs) We're supposed to be looking back on human civilization as a whole here, I suppose, and you know that this is the bit that was missing before. You know, a bit of a human connection and that sort of thing, as you mentioned, like when this big cosmic threat emerging, you know, where were all these people and what were they feeling and thinking and, you know, how did it affect them? We don't know. I mean, I guess it's an isolated emergence because you've only got, you know, four fingers popping out of some isolated beach somewhere in the middle of nowhere. Um, But there must be... uh, you know, a foot sticking out of Tahiti and, a, and an elbow <laughs> sticking out of uh, New Zealand and an earlobe coming out of Texas, you know. Maybe uh, that explains the Moai. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, interesting. I mean, you know, <laughs> what does it do to the planet to have these appendages sticking out? Probably uh, throw the orbit out a bit. I, uh, you know, is there a is there a hole in the middle now? Or? Yeah, Earth is now a giant donut. Yeah. <laughs> Just this hand sticking out. It's... Yeah. And, and I've actually seen uh, so many things online from crazy people on the internet who actually think this stuff is real. Uh, who will point to rock formations and, you know, natural features of the landscape and say, well, look, you know, it looks like a person's face or a a person's hand there or this looks like a footprint or whatever and, you know, um, the rocks were alive and, you know, this is the giants from Genesis 6 and they've become petrified and, uh, you know, you can see it all here. All these massive landforms were... uh, you know, ancient giants. Uh, so, I mean, I can see this kind of stuff in, in film just fueling all that madness, but uh, seriously, there's there's no way you can get it, especially not from, from the Bible. I, I can't believe people actually try to claim scriptural support for ideas like that, uh, but you do get them because they'll, they'll talk about things like uh, the, the world tree, you know, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel 4 uh, or Ezekiel 31 and, and the Assyrian that Ezekiel describes when he's talking to Pharaoh, um, where these world leaders are described in metaphorical terms and they, they talk about them like they were a, an enormous tree that uh, provided shelter and, and support to uh, all the peoples of the world. Yeah, you know, because that's that's what 
empires do. You know, when an empire rises up and dominates a civilization, uh, they sort of uh, in charge of uh, the everyday affairs of men all over the world. And uh, so then, of course, the the tree gets uh, chopped down. You know, the king dies. <laughs> Or uh, or gets humbled or whatever, and it's talked about in terms of chopping the tree down, and then you have people saying, "Oh, see, the, there must be giant trees around the place," and you know they just take it all literally. It's crazy, uh, and you have similar uh, discussions around you know, rock formations and whatnot that you know must be uh, giant people from before the flood and that kind of thing. And here we have uh, Icarus plunging into the sun, which, of course, is uh, mm -hmm. just sort of drawing on his uh, mythology from ancient Greece. Living up to his namesake. Yeah, that was it was supposed to be his... Um, it was his own son, wasn't it, who, who actually was the one who had the, the, the fabricated wings and... Oh, was it? Flew too close to the sun and the wings melted and he fell to his death. And then he named himself after his son. Ah, called right. himself Icarus. Uh, yeah, so kind of poetic, but uh, also really predictable. Anyway, the drama's all over now and they're all going to go their separate ways. Try and figure out what to do with their lives now that they've uh, rebelled against their creator. Yeah, there's kind of a throwaway line where um, they were connected to Tiamat um, via the Unimind. Um, so they, they stopped Tiamat from emerging because of their Unimind. So maybe that's what made freezing him easier. Mm. Um, and also that's what keeps them alive. So they can uh, go to the next planet, but I guess that's not going to happen happen anymore. Um, wonder what uh, what's their god's name again? Ara. Ara Ersham. Yeah. Um, what his reaction is going to be to this? To his petulant, disobedient children? Um, and yes. also, I wonder if uh, I mean the, the the landscape of the Earth has changed now. So. Uh, I wonder if we're going to see like these little pinky fingers in uh, Frozen in <laughs> other Marvel films, just as a nod to this film. Like, are these is this hand? Is yeah, just I can crumble? see them just kind of you know flying over it in a jet and just looking down and go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah uh, no, it, it does raise the question of you know if they if they ever do. Uh, make a sequel to this, which I doubt. Uh, is that going to be centred more on the Celestials and their response to what the Eternals have done? I, I could see that as a a potential storyline. And Sprite won't be one of them. Hmm. She'll be... Uh... Older and wiser, I guess. 
yeah, well, she uh, she chooses to to give up her immortality, doesn't she, for a for a human life and the experience of aging, growing up, being able to do experience different things. This is this is just cheesy here. Uh, you know, watch watching Thena spearing oranges to get them down for the for the boy. <laughs> We're getting little little token lighthearted moments now to try and sort of break the tension of what was otherwise a very uh, moody and uh, emotional film. That's right. A little, little bit late for all the lighthearted jokes. That, that would have made it more watchable, uh, I think. You know, to have a bit more of that throughout the the movie, provided they could do it without that being cheesy. Yeah, I mean, for characters that have been living in humanity for thousands of years, um, out of ten, only two have. Uh, romantic partners perhaps the mm. other eight have uh, chosen a life of celibacy or just recently broken up oh they probably get sick of outliving their partners and just don't bother yes that could be true also it would be a vicious cycle wouldn't it to fall in love uh, and then only to have it last a few decades then you're lonely mm. again Yeah, so this is the bit where we sort of uh, see the last of Sprite as a uh, as an immortal, doing ordinary kid stuff, playing games on the phone, going to school. Um, and uh, before I just saw uh, saw a scene with Makari said because uh, she and Drew talk about finding other Eternals and. Letting them know, and Makari said the truth will set them free. Mm. Love that reference. Kingo still has personalised plates. He's so vain. But, um, yeah, interesting here. I think you know that Sprite is looking for these ordinary human experiences um, because, uh, scripturally speaking, if we if we look at the Bible and, and what it tells us about the experience of angels, uh, we're told that angels are interested in the affairs of humans and that they are curious about the relationship that we have with God. Um, and, you know, that they, they long to look into these things, as it says. And uh, it, certainly in the early chapters of Genesis, we get the indication that uh, these divine beings were uh, perhaps envious or at least wanted to experience uh, life from our point of view, uh, which led to the events of Genesis 6 and the creation of the Nephilim. Uh, and, of course, the the irony of that being that the the giants, the Nephilim, once they... Uh, 
had had died ended up becoming disembodied spirits, which would uh, perpetually lust for human experiences that they could no longer indulge without a physical body. So we see in the New Testament the demons that oppress people uh, just constantly trying to fulfill the lusts of the flesh and they don't have a body that they can satisfy, so it just they're in torment uh, indefinitely. And uh, I sort of get the sense that um, Sprite was uh, trying to get out of that loop, you know, by actually experiencing humanity for herself and, uh, you know, living a mortal life. But, um, yeah, I don't think it works that way according to Scripture. This is interesting watching uh, Cersei being summoned by Arisham. The judgment that's handed down. It's kind of interesting that Arisham basically decides that Cersei will uh, determine whether the humans are worthy of being saved the idea of a return for judgment of course is another biblical theme you know we see that with jesus um but yeah you certainly can't compare arishem and jesus by any measure here's dane whitman's uh, big moment Yeah, so he's had uh, a few allusions to his uh, family um, throughout the film. Uh, very cryptic. And as I said before, um, in the comics, he's a character known as the Black Knight. Um, so I'm not sure if he will get his own film. Um, I don't think that's been announced as yet, and there's very little for us to kind of go on. Um at the moment about his character but yeah he's, he's kind of a, a lower level character in the comics um, but Marvel have proven that they can take those characters and bring them up to popularity and build a whole successful film around them um, and he would bring a more kind of magical mythical um, you know, King Arthur kind of vibe to the Marvel Cinematic Universe so I'm, yeah. I'm curious to see what they do with his character as he discovers uh, his lineage um, and his abilities. Um, just saw uh, then earlier, just based on the Marvel comics by Jack Kirby. It's very happy to see that. Yep, well, I haven't seen that for a, for a long time. It's only been recently that he's been uh, getting any acknowledgement at all, it seems. Yeah, it's a bit unfortunate, I guess, uh, and Stan Lee, obviously, uh, Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, both the architects of the Marvel Universe. You know, they co-created every character you can think of, pretty much. Um, but, uh, yeah, Stan Lee, obviously, with all his cameos, he's a much well-loved figure. 
but Jack Kirby is starting to get uh, the recognition he deserves as well, which is awesome. Yeah, and for a long time he wasn't credited for a lot of his work uh, in the early days. Well, it's good to finally see something. Yeah, I mean, when you create characters, you're basically, you don't own the characters. So Stanley and Jack Kirby, they don't own the Avengers or Thor or Daredevil. You know, you're, you're basically just working for a company and Marvel own the rights. Um, so those kind of lawsuits have continued over the years with uh, Stan Lee's heirs and Jack Kirby's heirs and whatnot. Um, and... and the comic landscape has certainly changed with regards to creators' rights over the years, and you can make a lot more money from film and TV and licensing deals than you can from making your wage as a comics writer um, these yeah. days. Oh, we'll go to the uh, post-credit scene now. And. I never understood what was going on here. They're, they're flying around in space, and then other people arrive in their spaceship. How does that work? What's going on? Just kind of appear out of nowhere. So who's this guy? Where does he come from? Um, so this is played by Harry Styles. Uh, he is the brother of Thanos. So this is a character called Star Fox. Um, so I guess he has uh, abilities. And, yeah, he's an odd choice. I mean, he's, again, he's a relatively character. But, yeah, the, the guy that introduced a relatively obscure character. But the guy that introduces him is uh, Pip the Troll. Right. Voiced by uh, Patton Oswalt. Um, the CGI is... A bit off, <laughs> but mm. they're just a couple of fun-loving dudes. Um, I don't know what they're going to do with them, but Star Fox is a bit of a sly, sexy kind of character. Yeah, I had a, a lot of people were having uh, mixed reactions to seeing Harry Styles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a it's an odd choice, but I guess. Uh, He's a bit of a Lothario in the comics, so I guess perhaps that's why they chose him. Right. I kind of feel like they should have introduced these guys earlier to kind of lighten things up a bit. Very true. You know, like why why wait to the dying seconds of the film to bring about some much-needed levity? <laughs> yes, and he introduces himself as Eros, which is another reference to a, a god, but... Uh, yeah. He's also known as uh, Star Fox in the comics. Yeah, that's the interesting one. So, you know, I mean, mind you, outside of this, uh, outside of this uh, particular intellectual property, I mean, what what other possibilities do you see for them in the in the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Um, I mean, I guess they could, if they did do a sequel, they would perhaps all of them hunt down other Eternals and kind of um, 
explain to them that uh, all about their deviants and the celestials and the whole idea. Um, so they've been awakened as well and they can see the light and see the truth. Perhaps that's an option, but I wouldn't be surprised if some of these characters join the, the Avengers, you know, um, Dane Whitman in particular, but yeah, maybe. Yeah, uh, well, wasn't he one of the Avengers at some point? He was. He's been in Avengers in the comics and so has uh, Eros slash Star Fox as well, or has been, I think. Um, yeah, because they, they do need to... Uh, I mean, the Avengers is like X-Men or Justice League. It's a, it's a constantly rotating cast of characters. Mm. And they certainly have enough to choose from. Well, it's been an, an interesting film to uh, to watch anyway, uh, looking at the different mythological elements and the implications for for us as Christians to, uh, to watch uh, through that lens. And uh, as I mentioned a few times, there's some interesting uh, philosophical and ethical issues that this raises. And, uh, yeah, I'm not convinced that they did a good job of really sort of landing anywhere on those. They kind of just raise the issues and move on. Uh, as I said, a lot of jumping back and forth between the scenes in the film, which kind of made it hard to follow, and the characters as we've said they don't really get enough screen time of their own to endear themselves to you so overall you can see why this film wasn't received very well um, but still for those people who are interested in mythology and ancient worldview and stuff like that there's enough to keep it interesting uh, I don't think that's going to carry uh, you know, through to justifying a sequel, but it'd be interesting to see if they do anything. I think ultimately it's going to depend on how well it ties in with other elements of the uh, Marvel Universe multiverse now. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, that, that could determine whether or not we see any more of this. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, uh, as I've mentioned throughout, it didn't connect with the audiences because it wasn't what we were have come to expect with Marvel films. Mm. Um, not a lot of humour. Um, characters that we're not overly familiar with. Um, and really not a bunch of diverse characters. Um, I mean, the Eternals in the comics all kind of look different and they have a lot more vibrant costumes and um, where I mean, again, Guardians of the Galaxy—they're all—they're all different. You know, Rocket Raccoon looks very different from Groot, and looks very different from Groot uh, from Drax and Gamot. Here, they're all human with slightly different coloured costumes, and um, just known from their powers, it's a bit hard to describe their personality types because there's just so many, and they don't get enough time to shine. But you know, I yeah. admire Marvel trying to do something different. Um, and kind of play with the formula. Um, they may do a bit of course correction, realising that it's their least critically successful film thus far. Um, but I think Doctor Strange will uh, bring audiences back, and Marvel have a lot of goodwill. I mean, they've been building this high, entire cinematic universe over 10 years, so audience tends yeah. to give them the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, yeah, well, that's... Uh... That's true. I think they can be sort of forgiven from time to time. And 
sometimes a film like this really just serves to introduce elements that are going to be more useful in in the bigger picture later on, you know. Um, so you know, you need a film like say Black Widow, which really didn't do well, uh, just so that you can uh, use the the characters introduced in that story later on, you know. So perhaps this is a, a film like that where it's just kind of a necessary stepping stone to something bigger. I mean, I don't think audiences will have connected with any one particular character from this film. I mean, with Black Widow, for example, um, uh, the new Florence Pugh, you know, Black Widow's sister, the actress, um, mm. she will she appeared in the Hawkeye TV series and she's been a much-loved character and Red Guardian as well. Like, But here, again, going back to the toys, they've just been <laughs> sitting on the shelves so obviously people haven't connected with them, so I don't think people are like, yeah, put Cersei in the next Avengers or, oh, definitely want to see what Sprite's up to. I, I don't see that happening. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think, uh, if anything, yeah, it's going to be, you know, the Black Knight and that sort of thing. And, I mean, wasn't even a central character in this anyway. Speaking of, here he is. Uh, Dan Whitman... About to uh, open a mysterious box. Yes. Um, so that would be the Ebony Blade, which is basically the ancestral sword that gives, um, I'm going by my memory here now, but I believe it gives uh, abilities to people in his, so the Whitman clan. Um, and there's been like two or three different Black Knight over the, year, but over the years in Marvel, but they're all from the same family. And uh, there was much. Is this the one that was on the spaceship? Uh, no, but it was mentioned because I think one of the characters said, Is that the Ebony Blade? And they said, No, this is Excalibur. Um, hmm. But here, this is the Ebony Blade, I, I would say, even though it's not named as such in the film. And the voice we hear, there was a lot of conjecture about whose voice is that. Um, but that apparently is the voice of. Uh, Mahasha Ali, who is playing uh, Blade in a film. So Blade is obviously another kind of supernatural slash mythical creature. Yeah. Um, and I guess that would be what's engraved would be his family crest or family motto or whatever. Um, but, yeah, I think this is an interesting end credit scene because it's probably a bit too obscure and a bit too, mm. like, people were just scratching their heads. Um, yeah, well, you know, that's going to happen from time to time. Uh, and and sometimes these things sit for a long time. Like, uh, there was that end credits scene at the end of uh, one of the Guardians of the Galaxy, I think it might have been from 2, where um, they sort of introduced uh, Adam Warlock. Ah, uh, yes. And, yeah, I mean, I, I had to go and look it up because I had no idea. yeah. <laughs> And well, we still think, haven't seen that character. I mean, it's been a long time. Yeah, the plan was to put him in the second one, I think, but now he's uh, confirmed and an actor actor is confirmed, Will Poulton, who will be playing at a, uh, Warlock in the third Guardians of the Galaxy. Mm. But there we go. We did it. We uh, watched The Eternals for the there third time. There you go. Sometimes <laughs> you just got to... This was fun. I enjoyed it. 
Yeah, is it like a sabre ripped off uh, like a band aid? Well. Yep. Yep, that was good. And, uh, and yeah, I'm hoping that the uh, listeners are uh, still with us, still awake. Uh, <laughs> hope you enjoyed the film um, <laughs> as much as I did and as much as Chris tried to. And um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, if, uh, if you enjoyed. Uh, hearing a bit of discussion about uh, ancient mythology and that kind of thing. That's that's what we do on our podcast back on our uh, on our home planet. <laughs> uh, Chris and I host the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, which you will also find at the Raven Creek Social Club alongside this one, the Commentarians. So, uh, yeah, you can catch us then. Um, each week we do a an episode where we do a bit of Bible study. We look into weird supernatural stuff, and we talk about giants and monsters and weird stuff in the Bible. And uh, of course, there's uh, more you can read about that if you want to pick up a copy of my book, which is called Answers to Giant Questions, just like the podcast. Uh, and you can find that on Amazon. Uh, just go to my website giantanswers.com for more info on all of that stuff and uh, yeah you can find out more anyway this has been the commentarians podcast for this month thank you Joe yeah Joe's going to be back next time with another uh, interesting film don't know what it'll be we'll find out then so uh, yeah thanks to Joe for uh, allowing us to uh, hijack your channel this month and uh, hopefully we haven't scared all your listeners away and uh, yeah as Joe likes to say we'll see you at the movies (laughs) bye bye